Hi, and welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through the philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. I'm Dan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're talking about big topic, work, meaning, and the future. And what we mean by this is the fact that work is becoming transformed before our eyes into something quite different than it was, say, a decade ago, let alone, you know, uh, our childhood. So we're facing a world in which there might not actually be enough work for human beings. There definitely will be for the robots and AI and other things that we're going to talk about. So what will the world look like and how can we adjust ourselves to this or plan for it? What's the prudent thing to do? And... This is a really messy subject because, you know, we're, we're speculating into the future. <laughs> Prognosticating, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, but, like, we do have some road guides, and we have a number of different paths that we might go down, kind of depending on the situations that we're going to find ourselves in. And as we go through them, we can say, like, is this a good path or is this not a good path, at least, you know, from a... You know, subjective point of view or objective point of view for depending on what our uh, criteria is for defining what is a good life for us and see if we at least know the paths we can potentially work to try to bring us down to a path that we are uh, all happy with or at least most of us are I don't think you're gonna get everybody on one sheet especially if there's people who like really like being on top and you know being mm. in control of everything it's going to be a hard sell uh to say well we should have a star trek sort of future you know <laughs> unless they're the admiral in charge of starfleet right right so it's interesting that starfleet has this you know for i guess you know the people on earth and uh, for most of the people it's like it's boring like you know relatively like there's Everyone that like has real ambition goes to like Starfleet because that's where you get to do wild and crazy things. You get to work on the edge, um, and but like you know when you go back, it's like oh yeah, like I run a uh, a restaurant, and like the people come because I have really good food, but not because I'm like making money because it's there is no money in that future, right? Yeah, it's space capital or space communism, fully automated space communism. Yeah, and you know, so before we jump in, we should talk a little bit about something we we brought up, and I forget which episode it was. We we're talking about Star Trek and a post scarcity future, and this issue of excitement and and meaning, and there's another similar sci-fi speculative fiction. I mean, it is a really hard sci-fi series where this is the case as well, and that's Ian Banks' culture series, right? Mm -hmm. So how, how do we, we have this, this same dynamic where you got a really soft, gooey inside, and then on the outside shell, you've got a, a hard, you know, um, we could say honor and integrity driven, also pretty competitive uh, set of people who are protecting it and, and, and they kind of support each other, right? All, all the economic mm -hmm. stuff is coming from this massive dynamo of, of human beings who are, they, you know, the technology's there so they can replicate anything, but they also really love what they, they do, even though it's not exciting most of the time. You know, some of them are musicians and some of them are, like you said, restaurant owners and 
Presumably some of them are, you know. Game masters. Yeah, exactly. But you ha- you can't have it because you've got all these other races, right? In Star, mm-hmm. in Star Trek, it's the, the Klingons until they become effectively domesticated and part of the Federation, right? And then you've got the Romulans, the next baddies, and then the Cardassians, and a few things like the Borg who will never truly be assimilated until, I don't know, maybe maybe they are in the new Picard thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um so you well, the post Borg. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They're they're yeah. they they've assumed a, a, a semi-human status again, right? Or, right. or not not just human because they could be all sorts of races. But you've got this you've got this um, dynamic where you you have to have the everything is fair and everything works, and then you've got the interface with the rest of the hard mean universe. Which is Starfleet, or what was it in? What was the name of it? In? Special circumstances. That's within right. <laughs> the culture spheres, and it's interesting <laughs> because they have two different kind of like dynamics. Whereas, like for the vast majority of Star Trek, the Starfleet is really high-minded. They're like, oh, you know, we don't want to interfere with the other civilizations, especially early on. And culture is like, no, we don't care. We're gonna like. We we have our our soft inner and we have really high minded ideals within there, but special circumstances like yeah you know there's a uh, developing civilization over here they're like medieval tech level yeah we're gonna like put in agents to um, boost them up <laughs> and, and yeah. to change their morality to be something that is more in line with them so that they're easily to easier to assimilate into their civilization later on yeah yeah uh, there's there's a definite difference there. Although, I mean, Starfleet has its moral dilemmas that arise, right? Right. I mean, the Prime Directive is brought up so many times because they're always tempted to break it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can Our actually... social circumstances, like, yeah, we don't even have that. We're just like, it's very utilitarian and justify the means. How can we get this done yeah. in order to make sure that the internal can continue doing the things that it does? So back to our planet, back to our present, back to, you know, we've got some, you know, good recommendations for you. If you haven't read Iron Banks Culture Series, you should probably give it a shot if you like that sort of thing. Um, But what we're facing here today is, um, you know, it's definitely not a everything is going swimmingly sort of situation of a post-scarcity future. Instead, you know, we're, we're in some tough times and people are encountering great psychological stresses and difficulties and facing up to the fact that work is changing for us in in very unpredictable and in in the way that it is predictable, seemingly dismal ways. Um, So we should talk about some of the big factors. Do you want to, you know, focus on some of the ones that you think are the most important in this situation? one of the main things is automation, both in robotics and AI. Um, like we produce uh, more than we did in the eighties with like a third of the workforce or maybe a quarter of the workforce. Uh, you know, the output is, is still up there. We're still, you know, a manufacturing powerhouse, not as much as some other countries, but it's just like the, the jobs that used to be there are gone. Yeah. And, um, and then AI is, you know, there's this a term that you know, software is eating everything, and now what does that uh, mean? That's that's actually a really good slogan. Yeah. You, so you know, just with with software, we can automate a whole bunch of things. Like there's there are robotics, but that all runs in software. You, know, you look at like uh, accounting. Lots of accounting is being 
uh, eaten, eaten by software packages that do what accountants used to do. Um, all, uh, there is a glut of uh, lawyers that have no ability to actually practice law because uh, people like, uh, I want to say it's Siemens, not Siemens. Um, there's a number of companies that do uh, automated document review. And so this used to be a, a really labor-intensive oh, yeah. thing for uh, lawyers. You, you look through case law and you look through any relevant uh, documents when you went through discovery. And it was like you like just reading and reading and reading and trying to find anything that you could use to support your case. And now they have AI that like scans all the documents and then figures out what is actually relevant and then presents that to you. Like a... Uh, a thousandth of the subset of what you would have had to do in the future. And yeah. so this was actually where most lawyers got their foot into many law firms as these paralegals. So that's, that's a really, let's pause on that for a second. Cause that's a really interesting issue uh, that you put your finger on and talking about getting not just their foot in the door, but getting a kind of training. So mm-hmm. something similar happened in the humanities. We talk about the digital humanities, and part of that has been, you know, the putting all of these texts into searchable uh, digital formats, right? So what we do nowadays, if if you're studying, say, Cicero, um, quite often, I mean, I I still am kind of old school where I'll go and like look through the book, and and I think there's a reference here to something, I just don't remember where it is. But even I will oftentimes do like, you know, word searches, either in the English translation or the Latin and find exactly what I'm looking for. Now, if you do that, you're missing out on the development of uh, a set of skills. You know, and I'll give you another prime example of this. So students these days, in, if they have a library that actually has open stacks and volumes that they can go and, and look in, they don't. They go to the computer and they go to, to JSTOR for articles and they, you know, look up, you know, if they need a book, they look up where it is and then they might go to the shelf and get it down from that place. Or they might just request a librarian to go get it for them and then they pick it up at the front desk. Mm-hmm. And what you miss out on is the dithering around in the stacks, looking at, at books and saying, oh, that that one looks kind of interesting too. I should check that out. Or finding things that you didn't realize were there. Like when I did my research for the the one you know big academic book that I, I published up until this point, I, I did it at the Notre Dame Hesburgh Library, and I would literally go to a set of uh, volumes that contained the journals from like say 1929 to 1941, and just like page through them. And now this might, might strike a lot of people, wow, that, that was a waste of time. Holy crap, I can't believe that, you know, you did all, all that. But you find all these other things along the way. And you also, in some sense, learn your craft. So if lawyers are not doing this document review, they're probably losing something important along the way, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we could say this for a lot of other fields as well. You know, think about tool and die operators. So... Most of that became, you know, pretty automated in, in the, the 90s, you know, where there'd be some, some fairly primitive, from our perspective, software running things, but you'd still have to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you don't really need that many people doing this sort of thing. Or if you're doing like plastics, you know, if you're, if you're doing a molding of, of things, you, you know, you put the model into the computer and then, you know, put the right kind of plastic in and it takes care of it for you. You don't, you don't have this 
getting engaged in the material itself. Or think about car mechanics, right? I mean, they still do some basic things, but a lot of times they like hook the car up to the diagnostics and they're like, is in like uh, the Little Britain episode, you know, computer says no, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, and then, you know, what's, what's the remedy? Eh, swap out these chips for these chips. So there's, right. there's a lot of fields where the humans are, in some respect, becoming redundant. Yeah, it reminds me of listening to Car Talk back in the day. Oh. And, like, he's like, S- uh, what, what's this, the, the noise that you hear? And like, what corner of the car do you think it's coming from? And what's your make and model? And they, yeah. they could like deduce that just from like these the sounds and feels and the description of how it rode. Whereas, you know, that, that is very tactile and very uh, close learning. Yeah. And that is just not there for, I guess, a lot. And, and to go back to your point on um, academic reading, uh, learning, that's exactly like I've, I've spent very little time just kind of uh, dithering in the stacks. Yeah. Uh, and, and I use judicial use of uh, find in text yeah, and, and I'm I'm not a Luddite. I love the fact that I can get literally tens of thousands of articles at my fingertip just with a few keystrokes. Um, but there is something that's that's being missed, and and I think academics a- academics have their own economic problems. But I think that they don't really need to be worried at this point about being replaced by computers. But so many other fields, that is the case. Right. And it's not just blue color; it is also white color. There's a lot of, you know, specifically lawyers is one that's already being eaten. And uh, can you come up the, with one that people might have more sympathy with? <laughs> um, engineers, computer science, all, uh, a lot of these STEM fields that you know usually would be considered, oh, those are really good, you know, respectable white collar jobs. Yeah. Um, the, and the way up for a, for a lot, lot of, of people, right? Yeah, and. Um, these are things that, like at least the lower levels, will be uh, more automated. And there's already uh, certain neural networks that can do certain programming. And it's like, oh, oh no, what are we doing here? I was going to say, does that making you sweat a bit or or not? No. Why not? Uh, because I like to mess around with making neural networks. <laughs> so that's one of the answers that people always put forward, you know, well, you know, mm-hmm. there's the computers are going to take everything over, but it's okay. We're not going to lose jobs because we're still going to need human beings to like, you know, decide what the computers are going to do and program, program them. And, you know, when you hear that, you think, okay, so they will need some people to do that. Mm-hmm. What about all the other people? Are we going to create kind of silly jobs for them? Like George Jetson, where he goes in and his whole job is just to push a single button, you know, is that really a job? <laughs> is that, is that just kind of like keeping him cooped up so he doesn't go nuts because he he's got too much time on his hands. Right. What what's the point? Is is just make busy work and we're already in a point where make busy work is kind of the norm for a large percentage of our population. You know, that's an interesting observation and that that's that's one that could have been made a long time ago. I, I think you're aware of the book The Peter Principle, right? Uh, vaguely. 
Okay. So it was it was written, I believe, in the 60s. It might have been even earlier in the 50s. And it was about hierarchical organizations because back then a lot of a lot of business and a lot of, you know, other things, educational, military, were all these these fairly well-defined hierarchical organizations, and you'd move up through seniority or, you know, doing a good job or something like that. And um, you know, they were kind of command and control is what, what we would call them. And Peter said that most people within organizations are not actually doing any productive work. And it's mm-hmm. because they've, here's the key Peter principle, people will rise to their level of incompetency. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're good at the level one, they'll, they'll promote you. And then you might be good at level two. And if you are good at level two, they'll promote you again. But if you're not any good at it, you're going to stay at level two. They're not going to kick you back down to level one unless you're a real screw up because they don't want to admit that they, they made a mistake in putting you right. in promoting you and <laughs> putting you in a higher place. Right. So you get there and then you don't do any really productive work because you're incompetent at what you're doing. So you become a manager. Right. You're at a restaurant. You, you wash dishes and then maybe you become, uh, you know, you, you start doing prep and stuff like that. And Everything's going great. And then they make you assistant manager and you're terrible at it, but they're not going to get rid of you as assistant manager and you don't get any work done and you get in the way of the other people who do. So his estimate was only 20% of the people in any given organization are actually doing real work. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it would make sense that uh, we would find those people that are doing a job really, really well and maybe just pay them more for that work because if they are the best at that, then <laughs> yeah. then you should do that. And you go find. So I feel like part of it is that like we we have these hierarchies and we have this idea that if you're higher in the hierarchy, you also must have a corresponding increase in your pay. And and maybe exponential, right? These right. days. And and maybe uh, it. Like if you are a system manager, you're not actually making more than your workers. Uh, maybe there are certain workers that are just really good at their jobs, and those are much more valuable to you. And you might uh, be better for you to just have them keep on doing that and just pay them a little bit more. Yeah, Peter's suggestion was much more individualistic, which is if you you should uh, make sure that you don't rise to your level of incompetence. So you mm-hmm. find a spot that you like. And then you start developing some quirks that he called creative incompetence. Start showing up late or, you know, uh, say weird stuff in meetings or something like that, just to make sure that you're not going to get promoted to the next level. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that would work today. That might get you fired instead. Right. Right. So so let's come back to today's stuff. So, you know, one of the things that's really radically changed the – the landscape of work is the several decades of deregulation and the fact that companies keep getting, you know, consolidated and bought up. So, you know, when, when you have a, a company that is innovative and doing a good job, one of the big tech companies will come along and gobble them up or they'll be run. We have hospitals that are essentially being run by venture capitalist uh, uh, firms. And, and, you know, this this leads to a lot of, of problems because, um, the organization is not being run by people who actually want that organization to be doing its main mission. It, it becomes about making more and more money and being more and more productive. And one of the ways to do that is to start minimizing the number of humans involved. Mm-hmm. So reducing the, the number of viable work spots, you could say. 
right? And right. and this is one of the the things that's been coming up as well. Who actually derives the the benefits from robotics? It's the people who own the robots. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not like robotics would automatically or AI or logistics or all these other wonderful things would automatically turn into a better future for all of us. It turns into a better future for whoever owns and, and directs it. So this, this is a good transition point, I think, uh, maybe to thinking about what work um, means for us. Because if people are being put out of work, what are they losing? I mean, we often talk like a job is, on the one hand, a right, uh, although we, you know, right to work actually means they can fire you whenever they want to. Um, right. Uh, or, you know, at, at will employment, it rather means that right to work means you can't unionize <laughs> in, in easy ways. Um, but but then, you know, a lot of people really do want to work. They may not want to work the job that they have or they do want to work the job that they have, but not under the conditions that they, they have it. Um, what does it mean when people are put out of their jobs? Are jobs something like a, a basic good that, that everybody should have access to? Well, this is kind of like, it kind of depends on which culture you're in. And like yeah. the United States has a very long history uh, from our you know, Puritan roots. And we have this Puritan work ethic, this, you know, well, I guess the, our German immigrants also kind of had this a little bit. Um, but the like to be, have a job and be employed is to be good. Oh, and yeah. that, that feels like it's, it's very pervasive still in this day and age. And if we are looking at a, um, a future in which there are fewer and fewer jobs, then there are fewer and fewer people who are like good. You can like see this all the time when like there's the, the meme of like someone yelling at the homeless person, get a job yeah, because they're not, you know, a good person. You're not like participating in society. Yeah, and the idea was also if you did get a job, you wouldn't be this homeless person stinking, occupying space, being idle, you know. Um, The job would be sort of like a magical transformation thing that in in a month or so, you know, two paychecks would suddenly turn you into a productive citizen and member of the community, right? Right. And Uh, that might have been the case in, in, in earlier times. I mean, I remember when I was a college student, um, if I didn't like a job, I could leave it. And it, I wouldn't find a great job after that, but right. guaranteed by the end of the week, I'd have some other crappy, you know, anywhere from minimum wage to, to twice minimum wage job that would, would pay for the stuff that I wanted to pay for. You know, that just is not the case today. You know, right. um, I mean, you have to ju- apply quite often online for positions and, and it's a lot harder to get into jobs and, and hold on to them. So, you know, one... Oh, go ahead. Another t- thing is that like our health insurance is also tied yeah. to our jobs a lot. That also gets you kind of stuck with a, a job. If you don't like it, you're kind of, uh, you know, SOL. Yeah. And this is actually um, a, a funny thing. Like my house, I own my house and it's uh, a triplex. And um, if I don't want to work, I can rent it out and, and I can subsist on the rent. Um, it's not a great subsistence, but it, at least it allows me that opportunity that I will know that I will not uh, starve yeah. if I don't have a job, and and so it's my fu house, and uh, you know just the ability to say I I don't need this job to any employer, which is kind of this rarefied position that not a lot of people actually have. Yeah, and and 
You know, it's interesting because that is one of the things that has changed. There's, there've, there've always been people who are kind of screwed, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the big employer was the only real employer in town. So if they don't want to work at the mill, well, they've got to move somewhere else and all their fam- friends and family live there. So, but for most people, I would, I would say in our society, you know, decades back, you could move if you really needed to, you could move from job to job. Um, it's not quite so easy today. So there's less jobs available. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because people say, well, I, you know, uh, I, I know that the jobs aren't very good because I've got three of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the gig economy is another big part of this as well, where people are not even being treated as if they are employees. There's lawsuits, you know, still pending about this, like with Uber and, and, and other things. Instead, they're treated as private contractors who are totally responsible for what goes on on, on their end. And it displaces a lot of the burden onto them. So we are, you know, we're really in a, I and mean, we're just charting out like a few features of, of the situation that we're heading into. Mm-hmm. What is it going to look like for us? And, and, you know, what does a job do for a person? Part of it is it supplies them an income, but it does more than that. It, like you were saying uh, just a, a minute ago, it signifies them as like a, a worthy person in society to others. To have value. Yeah. And, and I think also it's uh, something internal as well. A lot of people want to be productive. They want to have something they can do. Sometimes they're not in a job that lets them do that. And uh, they might get a little burnt out because of that or be disengaged. But not having a job at all, that really does a number on, on so many people. Yeah, not to mention, like, what's the first thing that you ask when you meet someone? A lot of times it's, what do you do? And what do you say when you don't have a what do you do? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm a part-time uh, amateur philosopher or something. <laughs> People started having to come up with all sorts of answers to that in the, the recession from you yeah. know, that started essentially in 2007 and then continued on for a while. And that was for a lot of people the first time they'd been out of work, not for like two weeks, but for months and months on end, sometimes years on end. And they, they would say things like, you know, I'm between positions right now. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody says that, a lot of people look at them, you know, oh, okay, so you're you're basically a bum. You're unemployed, mm-hmm. you know. And so people got creative with other things. Oh, I've got a lot of irons in the fire, you know. Yeah. But so it's like, it's, uh, once again, this trying to decouple your identity and your value from the work is probably uh, something that we could work on as a society. Now, why? Why Why is that so important in um, your view? Well, uh, meaning is very powerful in how people, the people's uh, mental health as well as the things that are driving you. Uh, and so uh, there's a, a movement to try to uh, decouple meaning from work. And so the idea of, uh, especially like the purpose of earning money is to have enough money to live yeah and uh and maybe the work the purpose of work should be to create and so if you're decoupling the making of money from that making of work uh then now you can have something that you're creating and you're putting meaning into uh that is not directly associated with this how do i make sure that there's food on my table and a roof over my head yeah and this is this is a perennial issue this goes way way back i mean plato in in the republic he talks about the difference between 
different um, arts or, or sciences or disciplines, you know, technes and epistemes in, 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 in Greek, <clears throat> ways of like knowing how to do something, like medicine, for example. And he says, the doctor is not about making money. Insofar as he's just about making money, he's not really a doctor. Mm -hmm. the, the art of medicine is about healing the body or producing whatever is supposed to be produced in the body. And so focusing on that, that productive aspect and not just on having to figure out how to make money or how to turn what you've got into a, a, essentially a money-making knack, that would really change the meaning for a lot of people. But that, that also sounds kind of utopian. It's sort of like, or, or not necessarily utopian, sort of elitist or privileged. Well, it's nice if you've got the kind of career that lets you do that, but what about the rest of us poor working people who can't do that? You know, like, and that's think about where we're going with this potential post scarcity economy. If yeah. we do have automation <clears throat> and we have the ability that this, the, benefits of this automation are actually given to everyone then it does give everyone the opportunity to do that and you know when you remove the need to have money from your work it allows you to do work in a more authentic way and without the problem of money you do your work out of love yeah and because you have a talent or affinity for it right right now this is a good um place for us to jump into talking about there's a number of different it seems like the, the the futurists and analysts they love to talk in fours i think because you can usually have a square then and it's a nice graphic so mm -hmm. one one theorist <clears throat> who uh, wrote about this in in jacobin uh, and then wrote a book later on is peter frasa i think i'm pronouncing his his name right and he, he was talking about um, four different possible futures for us. And he was being a bit more imaginative than a lot of the other fours that we're going to talk about, where they say, oh, you're, everyone's going to have to work. It's just a question of how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about um, two different variables that give us something like a square. You've got resource abundance versus scarcity and egalitarianism versus hierarchy. And he says these are, you know, ideal types. These are not supposed to be like everything's going to happen exactly this way. But um, the universe that you're talking about or the, the possible world, um, a post-scarcity future like that of Star Trek would be that where we have both abundance of natural resources and, you know, things can be coordinated properly and egalitarianism where we, we value people equally and we... We don't simply impose force or power on them. <clears throat> and that's what would be needed in order to have something like, like Star Trek, right? Right. And this is kind of like if you, there's, uh, scarcity is one of the, the major factors within like a capitalist system. And if you remove scarcity, then it, it kind of removes the, the reason why there should be prices for things in order to try to dole those goods out to the the right amount of people and if there's basically infinite good then uh basically everyone could have whatever they want they could consume as much as they want yeah uh, and and this is a possible future for us when we have all these you know robotics and ais in in place if we as a society decide that everybody's valued and everybody gets to do the kind of work that they want to do and everybody gets what they need, um, then we could have that. What stands in the way of that? Uh, well, 
who owns the automation is, I guess, the main thing. You know, otherwise there's some sort of uh, inability to get enough resources to be the inputs for this automation. So I don't know. Uh, we uh, blow up the moon and make most of the world uh, <laughs> uninhabitable. And now, <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. So, so another one of the options that he talks about, where you have egalitarianism. But you also have scarcity, like maybe we do burn through our fossil fuels or and, and if we burn through the fossil fuels, there go the plastics, too, pretty much because right. they're, they're made from petroleum, too. Although um, we can get that from plants, not yeah, the same kind. But, but the yeah. plants need fossil fuels in order for us to grow, <laughs> right? So we're, we're still kind of SOL. So he talks about that as being socialism. And he says nobody needs to perform labor, but people are not free to consume as much as they, they like. So we have to have like shrinking the belt, but we do it in an equal way. So every everybody, you know, pitches in. Now what if but we have hierarchy? Then then we have two, we have either abundance or scarcity. And so a hierarchy and abundance would be rentism. This is, you know, where there's a very few people who own all the automation capital. And now if they need no labor, then there's no, there's a decoupling between the uh, fortunes of the capitalists and the fortune of those people that are part of the labor force. And because you don't need the labor anymore and you just uh, basically turn this into yeah. renterism. Yeah, and it, there's like a prestige system, you could say, right? They they want to hold on to some sort of distinctives that make them better than, than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the last one here is uh, a hierarchy and scarcism, which is like the worst of all worlds here. Yeah, he calls it exterminism, and he, call, he, he characterized it as a communism for the few, and the idea is if, if we really do have a world where we're using up all the resources, well, um, you know, that works out good for the rich or the powerful or the well-connected because they can find ways to either um, sort of, you know, do, you know, what do they Mitigate any of the, the negatives of the scarcity. Yeah, for themselves. They Right. And then everybody else can, you know, as they say, pound sand. You know, I, I was thinking about the, what is it, bread and circuses, right? You can mm -hmm. keep the mass entertained and out of your way, or you put them somewhere else, or you just get rid of them. Uh, you, you see this kind of interestingly with uh, a lot of uh, tech millionaires and billionaires uh, doing uh, prepperism and buying bunkers mm. in the middle of nowhere, kind of expecting this social crash at some point in time. And they feel like, well, they're going to come for our heads. So we better have some place to hold up enough arms and maybe some private uh, security away from everyone else. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about the private security, what's their incentive to stay loyal in that right. case? Especially if, if, like, for example, if the dollar goes yeah. into the toilet what are you gonna pay him it's like right I mean, you better have like a whole bunch of spam yeah <laughs> but like once the spam's the only thing and he's the guy with the gun what what's keeping him from saying well no just give me the spam yeah and so this is this is kind of a really really big picture um dividing up of what our possible futures would be mm -hmm. but you know i think part of his point was we have to we have to be attuned to the fact that things could go one way or the other and it depends on what we as a society 
opt for or push for. And it's, it's interesting because this is like recent politics with Andrew Yang has been talking a lot about this idea and he kind of stakes out a position between this uh, egalitarianism and abundance and a hierarchy and abundance because yeah. he's like, okay, there's automation, it's happening. And, and so his idea to put forward was um, a freedom dividend. Basically, instead of actually, you know, making all the automation directly under the control of the government and this would be like your straight up capitalism yeah um that you still have or sorry communism but you still have like capitalist system but you just tax the heck out of the automation and say we've built the system together and we should then reap the benefits of the system together yeah you know it's it's interesting if you think about the logic of that and you were to like put it right in the present who would you be taxing the, the huge tech companies, mm-hmm. right? Because they already have massive, it's not a lot of robots necessarily doing everything, although they're trying to move as as quickly as possible to that. But if you think about the amount of data that Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Microsoft collect on us through either directly themselves or all their subsidiaries and all of the, uh, the you know, the money that they're they're bringing in, mm-hmm. um, very little of which is actually taxed and thereby used for for socially beneficial purposes. Um, that's where the freedom dividend could come from, you know. Right. But I don't see Yang saying that. Or am I wrong? Um, I'm not sure. I think he's more worried about uh, manufacturing. Yeah. Than automation. You know, th- um, this is a little bit off topic, but who do we think is actually going to do the manufacturing and own all the robots? Is it likely that it's going to be new companies rising up, or is it likely it's going to be these massive tech conglomerates who are the, the biggest, you know, uh, capitalized, uh, uh, they have the largest market caps in, in, in all of history and in the current economy? They, they effectively dominate the economy. What do you think? Um, I mean, I think, I think it's going to be a, a mix of some old companies and and some new ones that find a niche, okay. niche uh, yeah. that will uh, explode into this. You know, there's uh, it will what do they call it the the massive pool of money, and this is kind of back from the Big Short, which is about the 2008 financial crisis. One of the reasons why there was so much demand for these uh, tranched uh, housing mortgages was that there's like several trillion dollars of money just in bank accounts, especially in at least in that time in China, that were looking for some place to get a return. And so there's a a lot of potential uh, liquid capital out there for if someone has a really good idea that could you know have that 10x return, it could definitely happen. Okay. Yeah, so, okay, that makes sense. A combination of both. Let's talk about, because I, I don't think we're going to have time to talk about all three of the things that we were looking at. Let's talk about something that the Brits came up with from the uh, uh, Royal Society's Action and Research Center report. They talked about four futures of work. Now, here it's less big picture and a little bit more zooming in. They talked about um, four different scenarios or economies that would still involve a lot of people being at work. 
This right. is looking forward to 2035. Which, you know, that's in our lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a realistic window. Might happen before that. Right. Things diverge the farther we go out. So they talked about what they call the big tech economy, the precision economy, the exodus economy, and the empathy economy. And let, let, let's talk about the last one first, because it sounds it sounds like it's a little bit along the way of the the post-scarcity Star Trek one, right? Yeah. Um, I guess, what would you consider the, the major tenets of that one? They, so they talk about in the report that it involves a future of responsible stewardship. So technology doesn't just run away, right? And it's not mm-hmm. purely market-driven. So it's not driven by the two forces of, holy crap, can we do this really cool thing? Or, mm-hmm. wow, we can make a ton of money with this. There's some humane values involved, right? And right. and, and they, they, they're cognizant of what the technology could do that, that would be bad. And tech companies self-regulate to keep themselves Keep some moral compass. Now, this might be a little utopian. I see yeah. you look a little skeptical right now. I, I'm very skeptical of, you know, at least all the tech companies. You know, some of them might try to self-regulate. Google used to have the the motto of "Don't be yeah. evil." Um, <laughs> totally then, vacuous. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I think it, they actually meant it in the beginning. Yeah. But you know, so much in time, you know, you either what is it, uh, you die quick enough to be the hero or you live long enough to be the villain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and not even like, even if you had a couple tech companies that were moral, there's always those people that are out there that are like, well, if they're not going to do it. I don't have the yeah, moral scruples yeah. to not do it. And so I'll go out and do this thing. Yeah. So I don't think you can accomplish this without some sort of oversight and regulation. You know, mm-hmm. um, but if, if that happened, so, you know, there would be all this innovation and development and and we would be in, in a different world in 2035. But like they say, you know, you, you'd have a lot of funds flowing into what they call these empathy sectors, which I think are very important. Education. Right. Mm-hmm. Every 20 years, we got to re, relearn everything for a new generation, um, care for others and and then also entertainment. So that would be one outcome, and okay, that's... it's it's kind of interesting, uh, like looking at like Japan, which has a very large elderly population, and they're yeah. throwing so much money into that sector of their economy. Also, adding in automation to that to try to make robots that are doing like home care and whatnot, uh, and and it kind of comes down to what is your optimization function. Are you optimizing just for the profits or are there other things that we as a society and as an economy need to optimize for? And, you know, for a long time, I believe that like profits were uh, coupled very strongly with overall well-being. But if you get to the extremes here, uh, I think that reverses and they, they, they decouple harshly, especially if only a few people have all of the capital and they don't yeah. need any of the labor. And when you're saying they decouple, you mean that there's almost an inverse relation with one where the the more profits you're making, the the less well-being there is, right? Right. Okay, yeah. I guess I'd overall well-being. I'd say that's right. Um, and, and one of the things maybe we need to think about is, well, how do you, when these things have been separated apart from each other for decades, how do you get them back together again? 
because that's right. that's a, a challenge for us as we're moving into this this new world. Let's talk about some of the other economies. So they 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 also talk about the big tech economy, which is where the the you know technologies develop at a rapid pace. Um, there's significant improvements in quality of products, public services, and unemployment and economic insecurity start creeping upward. Um, and, and workers and unions are basically just stuck. They, there's not much that they can do about it. That seems to be where we are going as the default if we're not careful. Yeah, like look at the, the gig economy and yeah. you know, there's a, a whole bunch of workers that are, are really you know full-time workers, but they're independent contractors and thus they have no leverage over the employers slash you know, contract holders uh, that they actually work for. Yeah. So another one that they talk about that's also rather dystopic is the exodus economy, where you would have some sort of economic slowdown. And this this could be the case. I mean, they're talking about for, for Britain, that could happen here, that can happen in China, that can happen in any of the big drivers. And you can get a vicious cycle where there's there's you know less money in the economy, less innovation. And what which happens, prompts the government to then impose austerity, which yeah. then stifles the economy, and the, you know it goes and goes. Yeah, I guess you saw that, that in a... like Greece and Italy, right? Yeah, yeah. How does that affect the ordinary person as opposed to the captain of industry, right? Well, there's less opportunities for them, and they they may find themselves without work just because there there's not enough work to to go around. So. It's interesting that like they, they expect if this were to happen, then cooperatives and mutuals would emerge in large number to sp- serve the people's core economic needs yeah. in food, energy, and banking. Do you think and that's I, too optimistic? I, I, I find it interesting of these four, that's the only one where it came up. Um, and that it seems like some of these different ways of structuring our uh, economy and, and who shares in the benefits of our economy yeah. could uh, that cooperatives and mutuals could be potential like release valves for moving away from one of their, our worst positions. Maybe that's why they put it. And it's like you know if it says like the the people are become disillusioned with capitalism. Yeah. Um, and so they they move to really fundamentally different forms of economy. You know, it's interesting, I, I, and I don't want to s- spend too much time on this, but when I talk with my students, you know, Gen Z students, they will say things to me quite routinely like, what do I care about the capitalist economy? You know, what's it doing for me? And you can, you know, you can do the, the devil's advocate thing. Well, look at all the innovation. And they're like, man, I'm so cut off from all that sort of stuff. It's not helping me really at all. And this, this lack of buy-in is going to be a real problem, I think. You know, um, yeah. Let's talk very quickly about the the precision economy. This is what their their way of talking about what they call a future of hyper surveillance. So this is when you're being monitored all the time. Like you know, for instance, when you work from home, you know, looking through the webcam, somebody's watching to see whether your eyes are actually on the document that you're supposed to be doing, or whether you're watching a YouTube video. Right. <laughs> So what kind of, I mean, that may be the future of work for many of us. I hope yeah, not. And it, 
I, I hope not as well, and especially because it's like this idea that we should be at our desks for eight hours is a relic of a factory job where if you weren't at the factory on the line, yeah. then you weren't getting anything productive done. But especially when we're doing a lot of, um, you know, thinking-based work um, that uh, they already say that you only work like a, an office job like 40% of the time if you're actually being productive. You know, go back to that Peter principle. Yeah. Um, so but you're also on to something that we also probably do need like these ebbs and flows, right? You can't all be peak performance all the time or we're going to burn out very quickly. And so a number of companies have moved to just an output base and like they, they don't care how much you actually sit down and work. They're like, okay, well you need, you know, here's our, our outline of like, you know, save your programming. It's like, I need to have a, a function that does this. And it's like, okay, I did that. And like, okay, good. And you're still, you're in, in good sorts. Here's your salary. And so it's not like you have to be sitting there and, and looking at code for eight hours. Yeah. And, you know, I totally agree. You know, it ebbs and flows. If I'm looking at code for eight hours, I'm going to burn out. Yeah, and, and you might actually only get those top levels of the waves, if we're using this ebb and flow metaphor, by having those troughs, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you don't have that, then, then it has to like be lowered down. But part of the problem with the economy that we're in, because there's this emphasis on like, got to always have more and more productivity, I think we've actually hit, with the human element of things in many cases, we've already hit like peak productivity, you know, you can you can make things a little bit more effective here and there and, you know, do f- all sorts of flow charts and use, you know, task management software. But I don't think you're going to get that much more out of people than you currently are in many cases. Those diminishing returns. Yeah. So this this surveillance economy would be trying to, I guess, squeeze everything possible out of the workers, which is going to suck for the, the people who are living within it right yeah it's the kind of idea of like being always on always putting on this fake face to make sure especially if you're customer facing you know if you're being constantly raided you know black mirror did yeah i was gonna say uh, but actually before black mirror on community did it with the meow meow bees tell me about that because i didn't watch community i watched like a first couple seasons i think and then i uh-huh. I, I i something happened i just tuned out. uh there, there was an episode in which uh tim and eric from the tim and eric show if you're familiar yeah on uh, were co uh starring and then they might have actually helped write it but it was basically that episode of uh black mirror where basically everyone they got an app and everyone was constantly uh rating each other and it turned into kind of this like post-apocalyptic uh you know five stars versus three two one you know and four obviously um uh can't forget the like zero yeah um but like it, it like turned into this cast system where the the five stars were all like getting constantly pampered because yeah. their five starness gave more power to give anyone else because you know their ratings uh were weighted higher interesting yeah, I, so that that is definitely a danger there. Let, let's talk. I think you know before we talk about a, a um, challenge or or um, practice that people could put into play. Let's talk about why all this is is important. So you know we're, we've been doing a lot of talk, a lot of discussion of very big picture stuff. How does this impact the ordinary? 
person who might be listening to the show and wants to hear how philosophy is helping to improve their life. Well, I mean, uh, one. Oh, go ahead. Oh, it's just like there, there's, I guess, two major components. There's the the material necessity of the individual or their families. You know, getting that food on the table, getting you know warm clothes to put on your and your children's backs, and then there's the you know the meaning component. And uh, if a lot of this are uh, going to be trying to figure out how are we going to be going forward in our world and meeting those two needs. Yeah. And so for the first need, the, the economic, the putting food on the table and roof over the head and all these proverbial things, car, wheels on your car, whatever it's going to be, <laughs> I guess you can say that, you know, that you can look at it in a very individualistic way. I need to do what, what's going to be helpful for me or perhaps for my family. But you can also look at it in a more group-oriented way where you're like, well, what could we do together to, to make things more humane, to set up buffers where we're not all sort of exposed to the elements of the marketplace and just a couple steps away from not having what we what we need, you know. And this might require more organization. Um, and, and I don't know right now that our current labor unions are the device to do that. But I don't have any I don't have anything else to say other than that there's other alternatives out there that people can explore. Yeah, uh, like labor unions are to a certain extent kind of dinosaurs. They're a relic of a, of a previous age in which uh, you know labor was much more uh, strongly tied to your employment. you know you would work at the same job yeah. for 40 years and you'd retire. What do you think about the idea of some of the other like attempts to unionize things like Uber or um, some of these, you know, some of these other tech companies? Um, do you see prospects there for creating a buffer where people are going to be less um, subject to the vicissitudes of the marketplace? Or I don't know if they're they're ever going to work. It's it's. <sighs> Like I wish that there was a better balance between, uh, you know, the political power of labor and capital, um, and I think that could definitely improve the overall working conditions of the worker. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if the way that our system is currently set up that it actually allows for that to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, then some people are like, well, screw the system, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that that's that viable of a, a response. Coming back to the other side of it, though, the meaning side, I think a lot of people are very vulnerable because we still do, in fact, tie our, our meaning of ourselves a as workers to the work that we do and to the availability of work. So this is something that happened you know, in a major way in the 2008 recession. Many people who had never really been out of work for a long time found themselves unable to find anything for months and months on end and sometimes for years, and it did incredible psychological damage to those people. Now, why was that the case? Because they identified themselves so closely with their earning potential or having a title or having a place to go where you have an office. So right. what, what, you know, what, what would you say people ought to do? Well, you should either develop a non-work goal for your life and derive meaning from that, or, you know, as I spoke about uh, 
I think last week, uh, the the paper I wrote, which I believe is called uh, The Locust of Meaning, which oh, I yeah, tried yeah. to make this uh, argument that you should uh, have an abstraction uh, that like a category in which you could fit your meaning and one way that it would manifest would be your work, but you could also uh, have that manifest in many other ways that are non-work related. That was, that was in Stoicism today, right? Right. So we'll put a link to that for, for people who are listening. uh, So you can, you can track that down and, and you don't have to try to Google it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, you know, I like that, that approach to it, which is, you know, some of your meaning could be in your work. You just don't want to have all of the eggs in that one single basket like Willie Loman, because then it's going to be a death of a salesman. Uh, you could have, you know, one egg in this basket and one egg in this basket and one in the, what they call diversification, right, mm-hmm. in, in uh, investing. Uh, that seems to be a rather prudent thing to do. Now, that touches on the practice that we were going to talk about. So say a little bit more about um, picking a non non-work goal for your life what what does that mean um so this came to the idea of like decoupling your work from your meaning and uh so you can think of like finding a uh, a hobby maybe something that is that you can constantly be learning about and this idea of like maybe try to promote a, a lifelong learning you know, be a, someone that would be an autodidact. And so, for example, like I found that in, in philosophy, I, I find it very enjoyable. It is definitely not my job, um, but I do derive a lot of meaning from it. I, you know, I look forward to having this conversation with Greg weekly much more than I do going to work. <laughs> well, that's, that's a nice recommendation. And even for somebody like myself, who's, you know, paid to do philosophy, I don't actually have to study most of the stuff that I study. You know, I could just like just focus in on on the things that I'm actually getting paid to. But I, you know, I like reading some other things on the side and, and thinking about them. And I think there really is something to this this idea of finding something where it's not just about the the output. Uh, that that's that becomes like a rock that you can rely upon when, as is probably going to happen to all of us, we're out of work. Mm-hmm. Well, and also at the end, like when we retire, like what do you do once you retire? Yeah, that may be a whole other conversation that we need oh, to, right. to have down the line. So we don't actually have any any quote or quip to go out on. Any any word of wisdom you want to impart before we go? Vidi vidi vici. <laughs> here, here comes AI to came uh, song conquer. Oh, so it's the AI saying that, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, when when the AI can actually say that and mean it, it truly will be AI. Right. All right. Be well. Uh,